doing this morning, everybody? Good, man. Yeah, good to see y'all this uh, 4th of July weekend. And I just want to say, man, I am grateful, 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 grateful for the freedom that we have to be able to gather in a space like this and open up the Word of God together uh, like we get to each week. So I'm very grateful for that. And uh, if you are someone who's a guest with us or it's your first time here in a while, uh, we're glad that you're here as well. And you're joining us actually on the third week of a six-week series that we are in that's called Living in Exile. And uh, what we're doing in this series, if you are just joining, is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, We are just working our way kind of uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through uh, the first six uh, chapters of this incredible Old Testament book, uh, the book of Daniel. So we're just kind of working through that together. So the first week we were together, we looked at Daniel chapter one. And then last week, if you were here, we looked at Daniel chapter two. And so you can probably guess where we're going today. And uh, so if you got your Bible, why don't you grab it with me? And we're going to go to Daniel chapter three. So that's where we're going to kind of pick it up a little bit. So Daniel three, if you want to grab your Bible, go ahead and do that. If you need to use one of our Bibles, page 721 is where you're going to find Daniel chapter three. And uh, you can feel free to do that. If you do not own a Bible, uh, a physical copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take one of ours with you, make that a gift from us to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have a Bible. So Daniel 3 is where we're going to go. Now, as you're finding your way to Daniel chapter 3, again, if you're, if you're kind of new to the series, if you're just jumping in, you might be saying, why is it that we're looking at this, this book, this Old Testament book of, of Daniel? And he, here's what we said. We said that uh, even though this book is, was written about 2,600 years ago, so it was written a long time ago, we said that its contents and its message is one that is strikingly relevant to the time and the place that we find ourselves here today. So we said what Daniel addresses, some of the things that you're going to see addressed in the book of Daniel are actually a lot of questions that we might even find ourselves asking in today's time and today's place. So for example, some of the questions that Daniel is going to address or is going to shed light on are questions like this. So the question, how do I remain faithful to God and a culture uh, that has ever-changing values? Um, And I think that uh, for those who follow Jesus who are here today, and of course I know not everyone here today is a follower of Christ. Some of you are investigating uh, Christianity, investigating faith, and all those kind of things. Uh, But for those who follow Jesus, this this is a real question that we sometimes ask is, what does it look like to remain faithful? What does it look like to have steadfast faith in God Uh, in the midst of a time and a place where it seems like values are ever-changing around us. And I think Daniel actually really does speak to that in a, just in a really profound way. Or how about this question? How do I maintain personal convictions and healthy relationships with people who may have opposing views from me, right? And I think all of us are asking this question, is, is how, is it possible, is it possible 
to maintain personal convictions and healthy relationships uh, with people who maybe view things differently or have opposing views? How do you do that? And how do you navigate through the complexity of some of those relationships? And once again, I think Daniel is really going to speak into that and give us some really, really, uh, some really important insights into how to navigate some of those tensions and some of those relationships. Or what about this one? Um, how do the people of God make a real difference real difference, and I mean this, not like a real point, not, not like how do we make a real point, how do we make a real difference in the real world that we're living in? How, how do the people who have, have their faith and have put their hope in God make a real difference that is motivated out of a real place of love and a real place of concern for the world in which we live? And I think that these are questions that Daniel is really going to speak into and give us a lot of clarity and insight into. I believe the first six chapters of the book of Daniel provide for us an awe-inspiring template of what it looks like to live out a resolved faith, a steadfast faith in the midst of an ever-changing culture. I think that's what Daniel really reveals to us. Uh, if you were with us over the past couple of weeks, we introduced you to a prayer, and we said this prayer uh, that we kind of showed you, Colin just mentioned it a moment ago, we said this prayer in a lot of ways serves as an outline for the series. It also serves as an outline for the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And here's that prayer again. Father in heaven, by your power and your grace, help me to be resolved. Resolved to pray as a first response, not a last resort. Resolved to love and obey you no matter the outcome. Resolved to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolved to walk humbly in an age of pride. And resolved to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And so again, we said this is a prayer that we believe is an outline of the first six chapters of Daniel. It's also what we're preaching through. So each week, we're kind of looking at these different uh, areas of resolve. But our hope is that more than just being an outline to this series, that this maybe would be the collective heartbeat and the collective prayer of the people of God who are here at the Medina East Campus. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look specifically at this. We're going to look at being resolved to love and obey God no matter the outcome. And I think we're going to see this one really play out in chapter 3 in, in just an incredible way. So let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, here is what it says. So chapter 3, 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold that was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so let's go ahead and pause there for just a second. You'll notice when you get to chapter three, the opening character that we are uh, just automatically kind of introduced to here is King Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know a thing or two about him now, and we've learned a little bit about this guy. And it seems like so far in the book of Daniel, with every new chapter comes a new adventure with this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's always up to something. And so what's he up to here in chapter three? Well, the Bible tells us what he's up to. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was making this image of gold that was 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. So he was making this immense image that was made of gold. Now, some of you might be asking, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, how, how big is that exactly? I'm not super familiar with the cubit. And uh, so if you, uh, some of you guys have study Bibles or maybe you have footnotes in your Bible, it'll probably tell you that this image was probably about 90 feet tall and it was probably about nine feet wide. So a cubit would have been the span of approximately from your elbow to your middle finger for an adult. That's what it would have been. And so it would have been about 90 feet tall. And um, that's pretty big. I mean, that's, that's pretty big by today's standards. But back in that time, it was immense. And so we actually know, uh, archaeologists tell us that the structures in Babylon probably didn't exceed about three stories in height. And yet this thing was nine stories tall. Huge, huge, huge image that he makes of gold. 
Now, the question um, that might go through your mind is, what was it that prompted him to make this image? Right? What was it that motivated Nebuchadnezzar to, 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 to engage in this building project to make this gigantic thing of gold? What, what made him do that? And here's what I want you to see, is I think that Nebuchadnezzar's actions in chapter three only make sense in light of what happened in chapter two. I think if you understand chapter two, chapter three starts making a lot more sense. Now, some of you uh, might not have been here last week. We talked about chapter two. And if you weren't, I would strongly encourage you to maybe go back and listen to that sermon because the events of what happened in chapter two, I think really dovetail with what's happening here in chapter three. But if I could summarize it, here's what happened last week. Last week in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And it was a dream that troubled him. And so uh, we're actually told that Daniel through the power of God, was able to miraculously interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And some of you might remember this. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in his dream, do you remember what, if you were here last week, do you remember what he saw in his dream? And we're told what he saw was he saw an image. That's what it actually tells us. He saw an image. And what was the image of? Well, when Daniel goes to interpret the dream, he says that the image was basically this gigantic statue it was a gigantic statue. This is an artist rendition. We talked about this last week. And we said this statue was actually com- comprised of and composed of a lot of different materials. So its head was made of one material. Its body was made of another material. Its legs were made of another material. And basically, Daniel interprets the dream. And Daniel says what this represents, what this image represents, is it represents every man-made kingdom on the earth. And then, I don't know if you guys remember this, but Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he said the head of this image was made of what? Do you guys remember? It was made of gold. It's made of gold. And then Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, that represents what? Do you guys remember? That represents you. That represents Babylon. That's what that represents. And what was the point of the dream? Here is the point. King Nebuchadnezzar, you have a man-made kingdom that is right now the world's power, but after you is going to come another kingdom, another man-made kingdom, and after you is going to come another man-made kingdom, and after you is going to come another man-made kingdom. But here's the point. No man-made kingdom will endure. There's only one kingdom because there is a God in heaven, and he is going to bring a kingdom that's going to last forever. That was the point of the dream. Now, here's a question. Did Nebuchadnezzar get the dream? Did he get the point? Well, you think so at the end of chapter two until you get to chapter three, because what's he doing in chapter three? You notice what he's doing? He is making an image entirely of gold, the whole thing. So it's commonly thought that by setting up this statue of gold, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing is in his pride, he was attempting to resist precisely the message that God was trying to communicate to him in Daniel chapter two. He was resisting it. He's saying, I don't just want to be the head. I want to be the whole thing. The gold, the whole thing needs to be made of gold. And so, so he builds this giant image, and then what does he do? Well, look what the Bible says next. So he then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, so in other words, the big shots, to come to the dedication of the image that he set up. So he has this giant ceremony. He invites all the big shots to be there to basically kind of coronate this big image that he has created. Verse 3. So, here here we go again. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So they all stood in attendance. And then, verse four, 
It says, then the herald loudly proclaims. So this herald comes out. I imagine he's got a trumpet or something like that. They sound the trumpet, and he says, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the, you guys ready for it again? The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe. You're going to get the impression, by the way, reading through Daniel chapter 3, that the writer of Daniel really likes making lists because this is going to show up. So, so when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship the image will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Okay, so the king passes a law. He actually issues a decree, and the herald announces it. And what is the law? What is the decree? Here it is. If you do not bow down to the image when you hear the music, so when the music plays, you have to bow to the image. And if you don't, the consequence is that you will be thrown into a burning furnace, which seems very severe. Uh, but knowing what you know about King Nebuchadnezzar, if you've been with us, this is just kind of par for the course for this guy, right? So he says, you need to bow to this. Now, let, let me just say, before we move any further in this story, um, I think that there is a potential pitfall that I need to address before we keep going. And this is a potential pitfall specifically for those of us who maybe have grown up in or around the Bible. Okay, so if you're, if you're a person who didn't grow up in church or if you're not familiar with this story, if you've never read this story, I actually think that you might be at a slight advantage to us here today, to those of us who didn't. And here's what I mean by that. For those of us who grew up in the church or for those of us who grew up around the Bible, this story we know is a very, very famous story. It's a very, it is a story that is told and retold, and it is one of those stories that's so awesome that it usually makes its way into Sunday school lessons. And so a lot of times, we, we can think of it as kind of a kid's story, or, or we, maybe we've seen cartoons, you know, Bible cartoons that display this story. And that's fine, and that's good, but the issue is that for some of us who grew up in the church, it's hard for us when we're reading the story to not imagine this as some kind of kid's story or some kind of like cartoon type of thing. In fact, for some of you, even as I'm reading this, you cannot help but be singing some kind of song in the back of your head, right? For some of you, the whole time we're reading this, you, there's a song about a bunny that's going on. You guys, know, you guys know what I'm talking about? The bunny, the bunny, you know what I'm talking about. So some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, some of you are like, I have no idea what that is. You're better off for it, all right? So... Not that there's anything wrong with that, but here, here's the point that I'm trying to make is my hope is before we move forward, you need to understand that what we are reading is so much more. It is far more than a kid's story. Uh, what we are reading, this account that we're about to, to read what happens here is a very sophisticated, it is an explosive story that is exposing, I believe, very deep societal, political, and spiritual substructures. I think it's actually an, an incredibly piercing narrative about societal, about political, and spiritual substructures that are at work within all kingdoms that we see, a man-made kingdoms of all kinds. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, here's what I want you to think about with me for just a minute. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar makes this image, right? It says he made this image of gold. Now, here's the question. What exactly was this an image of? It says it was an image. Okay, what was it an image of? And, and here's the thing. We actually don't know. It never says. A lot of people speculate maybe it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, which I think makes sense in light of the dream, but we don't know that. It doesn't tell us. Here's the question I want you to think about. When Nebuchadnezzar commanded the people, decreed a law that said when the music plays, you have to bow to this, 
What was it that he was actually asking them to bow to? What was it that he was saying, you have to capitulate to this? What was it that he was asking them to capitulate to? Was it him? Was he saying, you have to bow to me? Or was it more than that? And I actually think that we are given um, some clarity on this, specifically if you look at verse 14. So if you look at verse 14, what you're gonna see is uh, the Bible's gonna tell us that there's some people who do not bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you guys, some of you know the story. They don't bow to the image. And look at what King Nebuchadnezzar says when they don't bow. He says, by not bowing, you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up. So do you notice this? What is it that Nebuchadnezzar is actually asking them to bow to? Is it him? No, not, not just that. Is it a god of Babylon? No, no, not just that. You see, the image of gold does not represent one god, or does it represent one person? It represents all the gods, and it represents all the values, and it represents all the beliefs, and it represents the entire culture of the kingdom of Babylon. What does the image represent? Not just Nebuchadnezzar, not just the gods of Babylon, it represents Babylon. The values of Babylon, it represents the ideologies of Babylon, it represents the kingdom of Babylon. See, what's going on, this is why I say this is so sophisticated. The reason it's sophisticated is because what's happening here? Well, listen, Nebuchadnezzar is no fool. Nebuchadnezzar knows that the kingdom that he rules is one that is a pluralistic kingdom. Like if you guys have ever studied Nebuchadnezzar, the way that he conquered is he would defeat a nation and rather than and then killing the entire nation, he would instead assimilate them into his kingdom. He would have them come into exile and he would assimilate them. So here he's ruling a kingdom that is in many ways a pluralistic kingdom. It's multi-ethnic, it's multinational, it's multi-religious. There's all kinds of different religions that people have. And when King Nebuchadnezzar looks at this multinational, multicultural, multi-religious community, this pluralistic society he lives in, he sets up this image and he says, everyone has to bow to this. And here's what I want you to see. What Nebuchadnezzar is not doing, he is not saying, listen, you need to worship the idol I have set up instead of your God. That's not what he's demanding. He's not saying, worship this idol and don't worship your gods. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 you need to worship this image in addition to your gods. See, what he's doing here is pretty brilliant. What he's actually saying is this. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can worship whatever you want to worship. You can go to whatever church you want to go to. And if you're at home, you can believe and worship whatever, however you want to privately. But when you're in public and I ask you to, well, you better get with the program. When I ask you to, then you need to bow to this image, to the image that represents all of Babylon. And in public, you better capitulate to Babylon's way of life. What does it mean to fall down and worship this image? What does it mean to bow to the image? Here's what it meant. It meant to declare that Babylon has ultimate authority. That yeah, you can believe whatever you believe, you can think whatever you think, but ultimately at the end of the day, Babylon is the great determiner of what is right and what is wrong. Babylon is the one who determines what success is. Babylon is the one who defines what failure is. Babylon defines what power is. Babylon defines what weakness is. Babylon defines what sexuality is. Babylon defines what marriage is. Babylon defines what, what masculinity is and what femininity is. Babylon defines what good parenting and bad parenting looks like. And ultimately, at the end of the day, to bow to the image is to say that Babylon has ultimate authority. 
It's to give that in your life. What does it mean to bow to the image? Here's what it means to bow to the image. It means pledging allegiance to Babylon above all other loyalties and all other kingdoms. It means taking your national identity and putting it above your spiritual identity, giving it a greater place. And here's what I need you to see is every pluralistic society, whether it's Babylon or it's Rome, Rome did the same thing, or whether it's the kind of community and culture that we find ourselves in even today, you're gonna feel the same pressure. There's the same pressure in many ways to bow. It's gonna show up in different ways. So what do the people of God do in a situation like this? Well, I think again, this story is very instructive to us. I think it's very instructive. So watch what happens. The story goes on. The Bible says, therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the, here we go again, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and they worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the Bible says everyone, all the nations, all the people, all the religions, they all bowed down to the image just like Nebuchadnezzar had asked. But apparently not everybody did, not everybody, because look at the next verse, verse eight. It says, at this time, some of the astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Now, you might remember that was a common way that you would approach a king. May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the heart, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship it will be thrown into a blazing furnace. So basically, they're like, your majesty, you issued a decree. Do you remember that? And King Nebuchadnezzar was like, yeah, that was just like a few verses ago. And then he's like, look at this, like, well, there's a problem because there's some Jews that you set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon and not to name any names, but their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they rat these guys out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, these guys are awesome. You might remember them from the previous two chapters. These men were uh, Jewish men who loved God, served Yahweh, the God of uh, the Israelite people. And uh, they got some interesting names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're kind of fun names to say. I heard one person call them uh, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. I thought that was kind of fun. So, uh, but they're like, Shadrach, Meshach, they don't, they don't pay any attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, here, here's a question I want you to consider with me for just a second. The Bible tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow, and we're gonna find out that that, in fact, is true. They didn't bow. And the question is, why? Why didn't they bow? What was it that caused them to say, we have to take a stand? We have to stand. What was it that made them say that? Was it a matter of opinion? Is that what was going on? Was it just a matter of personal preference? Was that what was driving this decision on their part? Was it just personal comfort? You're like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Well, actually, I think we actually know what it was that caused them. If you're familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible, I think you know as well. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of course, were men who wanted to be faithful to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. And because of that, what they would have been very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a very, very clear commandment that God gives. In fact, it's the first of the 10 commandments. I don't know if you guys remember it, but in Exodus 20, we're told the first commandment, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth or beneath it or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So I want you to see this. I think this is important. Where did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego draw the line and say, we cannot do this? And here's what I want you to see. The line was drawn at forced disobedience to the clear commandments of God's word. It's what was clear in God's word. Forced disobedience to what was clear in God's word. They said, we have to draw the line. So you can imagine how Nebuchadnezzar felt about all this. 
And so you see in the next verse, the Bible says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? So he brings the guys in for questioning. Is this true? Is this true? And then he goes on. He says, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. So I actually think in this passage, you see that it's possible that King Nebuchadnezzar actually kind of favored these guys. I think there's actually some indication of that here in the text. Uh, for sure, over the past couple of weeks, if you've been with us, you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have become really valuable to King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think the reason that he favors them, the reason I think you see that in this passage, is because Nebuchadnezzar does something that seems pretty out of character for him. He gives these guys a second chance. He gives them a second chance. So he's like, I heard you haven't bowed. And so look what he says to him. He says, so here's what we're gonna do, okay? We're just gonna have a little private ceremony just between us right here. And I'm gonna get the band. I'm gonna call the band up here. We're gonna get the band together. And we're gonna play the music. And if you hear the music and you bow down and worship, like, I'm not asking you to denounce your gods. I'm not asking you to give up you know, your religion. I'm not asking you to stop being Jewish. None of those things. I'm just saying, we'll play the music. And if you just bow, if all, all you gotta do is bow. And if you do that, then very good. No problems. Everyone will go back to work. Everyone, no one has to die today. But if you don't, if you don't, then you're gonna be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then he adds this next line, which I think is very revealing, very revealing. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, from my hand? Wow. I guess it's a very telling verse, very clear that you're dealing with a man here who is intoxicated with power. Here's a man who believes that he stands in the place of God such that he believes that the destiny of these people lies within his hands. What God is gonna save you from me? Well, watch what, Nebuch watch what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they respond. This is the, the best part of this whole chapter. So check this out. The Bible says in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him. This is so good. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now, this, is, this is such an awesome response. Before we look at the entire response, there's more to come. I actually just wanna stop and think about what they're doing here, because again, I think this is so instructive to those who follow God, those who follow Christ in today's world. I think this is so instructive. Do you notice how they respond? First off, notice what they don't do. I want you to notice what they don't do. In this whole chapter, do you notice what they don't? What they don't do is this. They don't retaliate. They never once retaliate. They never fight back. They never revolt. Never once do you see that in this chapter. When the king issued this law, when he issued this decree, and he said, listen, you either bow down to, my, to this image that I have created, or you go to the furnace. Do you see what, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? What's their first response? They don't go protesting. They don't revolt by making signs that say God hates idols and then march around Babylon trying to make a point. They don't do that. That's not how they respond. They don't, they don't notice, they don't take to social media and just blast the character of Nebuchadnezzar and say all kinds of things. They don't do that. They don't, they don't see them like 
Type it out on Facebook, like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar wants us to bow. Nebuchadnezzar, more like Nebuchadnezzar, right? They don't. That, was that a bad joke? Was that bad? That was Pastor Steve's joke, okay? So he's a, so I, I had a joke. You guys want to hear mine? I had one. I, okay, this is my, my, you have to tell me who's is funnier. Here was mine. I was going to say, Nebuchadnezzar, more like never going to bow down. So I don't know. Steve's, 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 Steve's funnier. They're both bad. They're both bad. So. But they don't, they don't blast them. Guys, think about this for a second. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would never have even been found out if they hadn't been ratted out. They were not looking for a fight. That's not what they were going for. They didn't retaliate. However, when they are found out and they're brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's court, they don't deny it. They don't deny it. In fact, what you're going to see is they don't retaliate. Look what they say. Look what they say to the king. They came to King Nebuchadnezzar. They said, hey, we don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to pick a fight. We don't, even need to, we don't even need to get into an argument. In fact, you know what, King? You don't even need to strike up the band. We don't need to go through this whole thing again. They're like, we're not, we're not going to retaliate. But do you notice also, they also didn't assimilate. They didn't just give in. They didn't just say, oh, okay, all right, we'll do it, King. We'll do it. Whatever it takes to please you. They didn't do that either. They didn't do that either. In fact, look at their response. Look at it again. They said, if we are thrown into the furnace, if that's what ends up happening, uh, the God we serve is able, he's totally competent and able to save us from your hand, your majesty. He can do that. Do you notice they don't, they don't just bow down. They don't just give in. They don't just assimilate. And basically what they're they're saying is something like this. They're saying, yeah, uh, yeah, king, we got your letter. We got it. And uh, we heard about the decree. We did. And we understand that the consequences that are there, we understand what you've said. But here's the thing. Um, we're not going to do that. We're, we're just not going to participate. We're not going to fight you. We're not going to retaliate. But we're not going to participate. We just can't do that. The God that we serve is able to save us. And if that means that you're going to throw us in the fire, if that's what you got to do, then, then you got to do what you got to do. And, but, uh, but we're not bowing. What do you see here? I think what you see here is so, is so instructive to us. And do you guys also notice, this, this just blows me away, do you notice how polite they're being? Like, if this, is, if this is a rebellion, this is the most polite revolt I've ever seen. Because look at how they address him. They said, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. They don't, they don't call him anything derogatory. They don't tell him off. King Nebuchadnezzar. They said that uh, our God can save us. Your majesty, he can save us. They're so respectful. Listen, can I, can I just tell you guys something? For those, for those of us who are followers of Jesus in this room, our boldness really matters. And there are times, there are times when because of our commitment to God, we do have to take a stand. That is true. But can I also just tell you, man, I think this is so important. As important as our boldness, so is our tone. Gentleness and respect matters. First Peter, first Peter, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But when you do this, you do this with gentleness and you do this with respect. Man, listen, for those of us who follow Christ, this is so essential. You wanna know what it looks like to illuminate the darkness? It looks like boldness. Sometimes it looks like taking a stand, but always with gentleness and respect. We have to watch our tone. When we talk to our family members, when we talk to coworkers, when we post things on social media, God help us. 
We can destroy our witness by our tone. Gentleness and respect matters. It matters. So respectful, so gentle. What do they do? They don't retaliate. They don't assimilate. They eliminate. They shine. They stand out. They stand out. And how does that show up? Well, part of it's in their response. And then this next part, oh my gosh, this next part. This is my favorite part of the whole story. Look what the Bible says, verse 17 again. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now watch this next thing. Oh, this is so good. Verse 18. But even if he does not, God is able, he is able to save us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want you to know your majesty. Your majesty, there it is again, your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So clear, so bold, so bold. This is a verse I think, honestly, is worth memorizing. I think it's a worth committing to memory, a verse committing to memory. And the reason is because I think this verse, what it does is it gives us a window into the kind of resolve that these men had. And what, what kind of resolve do we see? What does it show us? I think it shows us this. These men were resolved to love and obey God no matter the outcome. This was the resolve. We are resolved to love God, to trust God, and to obey God no matter what that means, no matter what the outcome might be. I think this is such a powerful, powerful resolve. You know, last week, if you were here, we talked about the resolve of praying as a first response and not a last resort. Some of you might remember that. And um, if you were with us, uh, Daniel chapter two, basically what we saw was Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in a life-threatening situation. And the Bible tells us that their first response in that situation was to pray. And then the Bible tells us that God miraculously came through and he saved their lives. And it was an awesome story, but here's the problem. If you end with chapter two, you might be inclined to think that the moral of the story is when you pray to God as a first response and not a last resort, that means that God's gonna pull through in a miraculous way and everyone lives happily ever after. Sometimes we think that. Well, if I, if I pray to God, then he's gonna answer my prayers and if he doesn't answer my prayers, either I prayed wrong or something's wrong with God. But you see, what I love about Daniel chapter three is this. What happens when you pray to God? What happens when you have faith and you have trust in God? And rather than saving you from the fire, he puts you in the fire. What happens then? What happens when you have faith and you have trust in God and because of your faith and your trust in God? This is what you see with these guys. It's, it's not in spite of their faith. It's because of their faith. What happens if in that situation you ask God to save you from the furnace, but rather than saving you from the furnace, he, he puts you into that furnace? What do you do that? See, I think what can happen sometimes is, for those of us who are Christ followers, I think sometimes inadvertently, we can put conditions on our trust and our faith in God. And we'll say things like this, God, I will love you and I will follow you and I will trust you. As long as you do this and you do this and this happens in my life. But if these things go away or if you don't come through, in the, then I, I'm gonna have to rethink it all. I don't know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And so if I pray and, and then you respond in this way, then wow, you prove yourself and you're true. But if you don't show up in those ways, then I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Not these guys, not these guys. Look at what they say, even if he doesn't. He can, he can, but even if he doesn't. In other words, their faith was not, it was not based on a prescribed outcome. What they basically were saying is this, listen, God is able, he is able, but that doesn't mean he's obligated. 
He can. He, yes, he can, but that doesn't mean that he always will. Why? Because I don't know. Because maybe he's God. And maybe he knows something I don't know. Or maybe he sees something I don't see. Or maybe he has purposes that, we, that are so far outside of our scope. And so we're going to trust him no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. It's powerful. So, so look what happens. You, know, you don't talk to the king this way, right? So here's what happens. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed. So you see, again, I think he had favor towards these guys. And now he doesn't. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he had them bound up and he threw them into the blazing furnace. Check this out. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, he just can't resist making lists. He's like, another list. Um, they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace, and the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot, check this out, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the burning furnace. Now watch this next thing. This is awesome. This is the next thing. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked the advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and we threw? Weren't there three and they said, certainly, your majesty, which there's no other answer to give this guy than that one, right? Wasn't there three? Yeah. Wasn't there 12? Sure. Whatever you say, there was king, right? So I, I don't know how this all panned out. I, I actually was trying to think about it. I'm not sure how this worked, but apparently King Nebuchadnezzar was able to see into the fire. He was able to see into the furnace. I don't know how all that worked. Uh, there's a lot of different theories out there. You can actually look it up if you want to. There's even some artist rendition of what that could have looked like. Like there's a spot where they would have thrown the guys and there's a spot where you could actually watch the fires below. But, but anyway, look what happens. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? And we're like, yeah, we threw three guys in there. Now watch what he says next. This is wild. He says next. He said, look, I see four. There's four men that are walking there in the fire. And notice they're unbound and they are unharmed, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. What does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. What does that even look like? I haven't a clue. I have no idea. But what's going on? He looks in and he says, we threw three guys in there. There's four and they're unbound and they're unharmed. You guys, I, I try to imagine the scene in my mind, and I, I probably didn't happen this way, but this is the way that I like to try to imagine that the scene took place. I try to think about what was going through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's mind in this moment, you know? And the way I envision it was, you know, they were talking to the king, and they're like, look, we're not going to bow down, and if that means we're going to get thrown in the fire, then throw us in the fire. Our God can save us, and, but even if he doesn't, we're just not going to bow down. And my guess is that the whole time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are probably waiting to see, is God going to show up? Is God going to do something? And they're probably, you know, the whole thing's happening. They're marching them to the fire, and they're probably like, is God going to intervene? Is God going to do something? And then my guess is that right when they get to the edge of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, okay, I guess he's, he's not going to save us. That's okay. That's okay. We're going to be with him in glory anyway, so it's fine. And they throw him in the fire, and <laughs> the way I imagine it, and again, probably didn't happen this way, my guess is they get in the fire, and Shadrach probably goes first, right? And my guess is Shadrach's like... We're okay. And then I'm guessing Meshach, you know, is like, we are unharmed and unbound, right? And then I'm guessing Abednego is probably like, guys, who is that? You know, 
And there's like a fourth guy that's just like, hey. You know, I'm like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this? And here's the crazy thing. We don't know. The Bible never tells us who this guy is. Uh, some people have speculated maybe it was an angel that God has sent to save them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. Um, you know what a lot of commentators think, and I'm inclined to probably agree with them. Uh, some commentators think that what you're dealing with here is something they call a Christophany. And what that is, it is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, you guys know that Jesus didn't start at Christmas, right? So Jesus didn't begin at Christmas. The Bible says in Colossians chapter one that he was with God in the beginning, that all things were made through him, by him, for him. And so maybe that's very possible. That might be what's going on. But can I tell you what comforts me so much in this verse? This brings me so much comfort and so, and so much perspective in this. And that's this, that I think there's a deeper promise for us that's at play. And it's this one right here, that while God doesn't always keep us from the fires, while God doesn't always keep us from the furnace, the promise is, is that he will meet us in them. That he will meet us in there. Can I tell you something that was just absolutely blowing me away this week, and it just struck me in just a fresh way. Do you guys notice what they're doing in the fire? Do you notice what the Bible says they're doing? The Bible says that they're walking around. They're walking around. Now, can I tell you why that was so impactful to me? Do you guys know that the word walking that's used there in the Aramaic is transliterated from the Hebrew word that is used in Genesis when it talks about how mankind walked with God in the garden? What's that telling us? Can can I tell you what I think it's telling us? I think the promise is this. More than your father in heaven wants your security. More than your father in heaven wants your protection. He wants to give you himself. There is nothing more valuable on earth than a relationship with him. And can I just tell you, and I don't wanna over-allegorize this, but can I just tell you something I have found in my own life personally, and I have also found is true in the lives of so many other people who follow Jesus, and it's this, that honestly, sometimes the closest walk with Jesus is found in the fire. That it's when you're in the fire that you walk the most closely with him, and he walks the most closely with you. So look what happens next. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening in the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, service of the Most High. God, come out, come here. And uh, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out. So they probably were like, all right, we got to go. I want to see you, Jesus. You know, <laughs> go out here. And so then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire hadn't harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their bodies were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and they defied the king's command, and they're willing to give, give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now watch this next thing. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for Noah. You guys believe this guy? Can you believe this? In one chapter, oh my goodness. You're like, what is this guy's deal? And what is gonna happen to this guy? Well, come next week. You'll see what happens, what's gonna happen to this guy. But this is the point. He says, there's no other God that can save this way. And that's the point. There is no other God who can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And with that, I'll ask the band to make their way up. And um, as the band settles in and we close our time out, I I actually just want to finish our time very simply with just three 
Three simple concluding thoughts, and then, and then we'll pray and we'll be, we'll be done. Here's the first one. You guys, I think it's important that we recognize that this passage, this story is an incredible story. It's an incredible passage, and it's about them. It, for sure, it is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's about something that happened in their life. But it is for us. It is for us. And what I mean by that is this. This is a story that happened 2,600 years ago. But I believe that God, the reason he has so graciously and he has, in his kindness, preserved these words over this time so that we can read them here today in this room is because these words are intended to be instructive to us. They're intended to be helpful to us. They're intended to give confidence to us. I think that's what we see in, 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 uh, in the passage that we're reading here. It's, it's about them, but this is a passage that is ultimately for us. Here's something that I can tell you that I know is throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the church for the past 2,000 years, there have been followers of Jesus who have been persecuted for their faith. There are followers of Jesus who have been imprisoned for their faith. There's followers of Jesus who have even been martyred for their faith. And there are so many accounts where they are recorded as in those moments of persecution that their mind went back to this passage right here. And, and listen, I believe that for those of us who follow Christ, that when we face the temptation to bow, when we face the temptation in, in those moments to, to bow to something or, to, or to, 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 when we're in a moment where there's a time to take a stand, my hope is in those moments that these words would come back to our mind, that this isn't just a cool story, but this is something that's for us to give us instruction, to give us direction, and to give us confidence. Now, having said that, I wanna say this next thing. I think it's true that we, those of us who follow Jesus, we cannot expect to stand for God publicly if we do not live for him privately. I think this is really important to say this. You know, because here's the thing, I think what happens when we read a passage like this, if you're anything like me, when I read a passage like this, I get so fired up. I mean, I just get so, it's like watching Rocky. I get so jacked up reading this. And I read it and I just think, oh man, look at Shadrach, Meshach, and look at their boldness, look at their faith, look at the, I wanna be like these guys. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I'll go to the furnace. I'll die for Jesus. And I, it makes me feel that way, right? But here's the question. That's good. I think that's really good. But here's the question. Maybe you're going, I'll die. I wanna be, I'll die for Jesus. But how about this? What if you just started by living for him? Would you just live for him? Would you die to yourself today for the sake of the thing that matters to him? Can I just tell you something that breaks my heart? What breaks my heart is some Christians today are so passionately persistent that this nation and this society live in a way that honors God. And yet we don't see that same kind of passion for personal holiness. We don't see that same kind of passion to stand for God in our internet habits or to stand for God in our marriages or in our families or in our own personal lives. And I'm just saying, maybe you wanna stand for him publicly, but will you live for him privately? I think that what you see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was the fruit of a personal life. It was a personal abiding relationship with him. See, sometimes we can read this and we can say, oh man, that's so, I, I wanna go to, I'll go to the furnace. I'll go to the furnace. Okay, okay, how about this though? Would you go to your neighbor? Would you talk to your, would you, would you go to our community? Would you love and serve them in the name of Jesus? And I, I go to the furnace. Would you, would you go to the next generation? I go to the furnace. Would you go to power kids? Some of you are like, I'll go to the furnace, you know. <laughs> it's better there. And, but you get it, right? We live, we live for him. We live for him. And lastly, there is only one image that is, worth, is worthy to bow your entire life to. There's only one. 
We didn't have time to get into it, but one of the repeated phrases in Daniel chapter three, I mean, it shows up over and over and over and over again. It's almost comical, is how many times it says, Nebuchadnezzar set up the image, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. Seven times in this short chapter, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image, Nebuchadnezzar. What's that trying to tell us? Here's what it's trying to tell us. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar set up. This is a man-made image. It is a man-made kingdom. And the reason that these guys can't bow to it is because it's something that is man-made. But did you guys know that God has himself made an image? Did you know that? God has set up an image. And what is that image? Colossians 1, the Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And listen, this image doesn't stand 90 feet. It towers over all of creation. This is the image that towers over all things, things in heaven or earth, visible, invisible, all thrones, all powers, all rulers, all authorities, all of creation, he stands above them all. And here's the question, how does this king, not Nebuchadnezzar, how does this king rule the world? Well, look what the Bible's gonna say. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This king did not conquer the kingdoms of this earth by shedding their blood, He conquered the kingdoms of the earth by shedding his own blood. And what an instructive, what a powerful, what an amazing king. He is our example and he is the king that we worship. He is the only image who's worth bowing to. And so we bow to him now. Let's bow to him together now in prayer. Well, Jesus, we wanna come to you and we wanna recognize that you are the image of the invisible God. That you are over all creation. That you are the king, you're the king. And you are the, the most high, is sovereign over all of the kingdoms on earth. And so we want to bow our hearts, we want to bow our allegiance, we want to bow our dedication, we want to bow our affections to you. And we ask you in these next moments that as we get a chance to worship and sing, that the, the songs that we're singing, the lyrics that we're saying, that they're more than just words, that they are the reflection of our heart to you. And so God, we bow before you as the true king. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.